Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Inga Saffron, author of Becoming Philadelphia. Inga Saffron is the author of Becoming Philadelphia, How an Old American City Made Itself New Again. Now, you're the architecture critic for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Obviously, you write about architecture, but uh, why do newspapers have architecture critics? Well, just for the same reason they have all sorts of critics, um, because um, culture is important and architecture is part of our um, cultural heritage and um, it reflects uh, on our culture's accomplishments. Um, it is kind of interesting because, you know, people are used to movie critics and restaurant critics and um, art critics. Um, I always say there's a, a big difference between um, movie and restaurant critics who are sort of uh, consumer critics as well as cultural critics. You know, they're, they're telling you uh, if it's worth... Um, spending your money on a movie or, or a restaurant meal. Um, architecture critics are different. They, you know, that brings in um, a lot of uh, public issues and of accountability and um, the common good and um, uh, other things. And I, 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 always, I always joke that, um, you know, it's not about saving the reader money. It's about costing the the developer money because if I if I criticize something, uh, it might end up making that project more expensive. But um, you know, it's it's really it's really important um, for the public to know, you know, what's being built, how it's going to affect their their lives, their neighborhoods, their um, their da daily trajectory through the city. Um, it's it's really different if if you if you don't like a an exhibit in a museum you, you don't have to go see it but um, if there's a bad building um, in, in in you know in your daily um, uh, space uh, you're going to encounter that all the time uh, so it's really important to know um, what's being built how it's being built. Um, uh, there's uh, definitely a, a public accountability role for the for the architecture critic. Now, before you became an architecture critic, you were a foreign correspondent for the Inquirer. How did your experience in places like Bosnia and Chechnya influence your interest in writing about cities? Well, you know, I, like a lot of reporters, I, I'm a jack of all trades, and um, I start out, you know, like many many young reporters, covering covering towns and the suburbs and um, covering culture, and and then I became a foreign correspondent and and, and went overseas. And I, first, I was in uh, the former Yugoslavia. Uh, I was there uh, just as that country was breaking up and there was a terrible war. Um, and then I was in in Moscow for four years as the Inquirer's um, Moscow correspondent, and I was there just as the former Soviet Union was breaking up and there were a couple wars I covered. 
So um, it was very dramatic, um, particularly in in Yugoslavia, where um, I was there at the start of the war in Bosnia when um, Sarajevo, uh, which is a, a great old Ottoman and Austrian-Hungarian city, was being bombarded and um, other cities were being destroyed and uh, mosques and churches were being blown up. And um, just watching... Um, these great relics of, of culture being destroyed and these these places where people lived and had called home for centuries being destroyed was just, you know, it was really horrible. And then I saw the same thing again uh, when I covered the war in Chechnya, which is in, in southern Russia. Um, the city was, you know, really obliterated by bombardment. And, um, you know, this place where people lived was was just leveled. Uh, it brought back a lot of memories for me of, you know, things in America with urban renewal. Um, cities, you know, leveled in a different way, you know, either either through um, buildings actually being raised, but also through abandonment and neglect and blight. Um, and there, you know, I just I thought about how we treat the places we live and how we could treat them better. Now you're right, uh, when you returned to Philadelphia from overseas and you started work, started writing about architecture, uh, you say, as I wandered around Philadelphia during my first few days on the job, I was often overcome with a sense of disorientation. Why? So, I, you know, I had lived in Philadelphia for uh, five or six years um, when I was, uh, I was actually working in the suburbs. Um, and then, um, this was in the late 80s. And then in the in the 90s, I basically went overseas and I spent um, the better part of that decade um, away. And there were a lot of changes in Philadelphia, some, some for the worse in that period. It was a very difficult period for the city. And, and when I came back, um, it was disorienting because, you know, I had this memory of this place, but I, you know, things had grown shabbier. Uh, buildings were missing. So it was the same place, but it was different. Um, one of the things I write about in the book is um, is the uh, fire at One Meridian, uh, which is a, was a high-rise office building across from City Hall in Philadelphia. And um, there was a terrible fire there in 1991. Uh, at the time, it was the worst high-rise fire in American history. Uh, three firefighters died uh, trying to put out that fire. And um, it was really devastating for the city to have this burned-out high-rise building right across from City Hall in the very center of the city. Um, I left a couple months later to go write about Yugoslavia. And uh, then, as I said, I really didn't come back very much um, until uh, the beginning of 1999. And that building was still there, completely, you know, smoke-blackened, burned out. Um, it was um, it was shocking. It was shocking to think that you could have a burned out skyscraper in the very heart of a major U.S. city sit there for almost eight years. Why didn't anybody do anything about that? Well, I think you know, of course, a lot of people did want to do something about it. Um, it was tied up in an insurance claim for a long time. Um, there had been talk about the city uh, taking matters into its own hands. 
uh, and tearing it down. Um, but the city was nervous about that, nervous about the liability, um, what it would cost the city. Um, it just it took a lot of wrangling, and I, you know, probably. Um, you know, that insurance claim could drag on because there wasn't very much demand um, for new construction in Philadelphia at that time. The city was still, you know, in a pretty depressed state. And, and so, so with little demand for new, new buildings and, you know, the arguments between the owners and the insurance companies, it just, you know, dragged on and on and on. Um, you know, I would say pre pre COVID, it, it would hard it would be hard to imagine because the city was booming with development and and developers were you know just scrambling to get any buildable site they could in in a in a prime area, but back then things were were entirely different. Now you mentioned that uh, that the building was in this continued to be in this burnt out state, and uh, there are other buildings in various state of uh, disarray. How does that affect the psychology of a city? I, I think it makes people feel beaten down. You have to walk past this every day on your way to work or school. Um, it's incredibly depressing and, and it just drains you of all hope. And if you think about, I mean, this was in the, the downtown where, you know, there were, of course, other functioning office buildings, although um, at that time a lot of office buildings had been mothballed because um, a lot of companies had moved out of the city. But, um, you know, just try to think about how that must be in like a, a declining neighborhood where, you know, residents have left and houses have been abandoned and uh, maybe vandalized, burned out, torn down, uh, trash everywhere. Um, you, you start to lose hope and you, um, you know, it just creates this cycle where other people le leave and uh, the neighborhood loses its cohesion. What we're talking about is what you encountered when you came back. Uh, we're now a few decades down the line from that. How have things changed? So, um, you know, COVID has, has changed a lot. So I'll just, I'll speak about, uh, you know, how things were pre-COVID. Pre um, so when I, when I started doing this job around early, early 1999, um, as I said, things were, were pretty depressed. There wasn't much new construction. Um, but uh, in, a, in a matter of a few years, you know, things changed dramatically and suddenly Philadelphia became quite a desirable place to live. And um, the last decade has been just this nonstop building boom, maybe more than a decade. Um, and um, there are, you know, building sites everywhere and there's, you know, been a... Uh, you know, a pretty sizable population increase, an increase in, in, in small businesses like restaurants and shops. And it's been, a you know, become an incredibly dynamic place, um, not just in the downtown, but in a lot of neighborhoods around it, um, neighborhoods that, um, you know, were, were really struggling, have made this, um, had this incredible revival. Um, We've also seen a lot of gentrification as well. And we've also seen neighborhoods that have been totally bypassed by this boom um, for, for um, yeah, unfortunately, um, that are still struggling um, with, with blight and abandonment and, and lack of investment. Um, but, um, you know, it is, you know, if, if you were here, 
you were here in the 80s in Philadelphia and then you know we're suddenly transported today to some of the some of the old neighborhoods uh, you you wouldn't believe what you were seeing because there is just um, so much new construction it's almost like they've been totally remade uh, places like Fishtown and, and Northern Liberties and um, uh, a neighborhood called Graduate Hospital you mentioned gentrification. What is that? So uh, let's see. The I guess the official so the official definition of, of gentrification is when a population of a of a higher uh, income bracket uh, replaces a, an existing population. You know, um, gentrification in Philadelphia is by no means on the same level as it is in in places like uh, San Francisco or um, uh, maybe Seattle or some other places, or, or Washington, D.C., that's a, another good example, where, um, you know, uh, Washington, D.C., for example, used to be a, a majority black city, and now it no longer is, um, because um, what happened there and, and what's happened in some neighborhoods in Philadelphia is that, you know, people first began, you know, fixing up houses and then building new houses and then um, a new um, higher income population uh, replaced the old neighborhood. And, and, and we're seeing some of that here in Philadelphia. I mean, in some cases, uh, there was some depopulation first and that kind of paved the way for newcomers to come in and, and take old houses and fix them up. Um, and in many cases, you know, old neighborhoods welcomed um, new residents because they, they saw their neighborhoods being fixed up. They saw new parks and rec centers. Um, the real problems start to come when you have this big income difference and, and um, uh, poorer people can't afford to pay their property taxes or they feel unwelcome in their own neighborhoods. Um, so that that's been a struggle in, in some Philadelphia neighborhoods. Now, one of the topics that appears throughout the book and is perhaps a product of some of the changes that have gone over the past couple of decades is uh, parking garages. And at one point you, you call for a moratorium on new garages. Uh, why, why is this topic so important to you? When I first started uh, working as the architecture critic for the Inquirer, um, as, I, as I said, you know, the city was kind of depressed and there was very little new construction, and um, but there were hints that uh, things were starting to change. And and um, at that time, the mayor was Ed Rendell, and um, he was a big cheerleader for um, attractions that would bring suburbanites and tourists into the city. Like um, he created this Avenue of the Arts and uh, plan for for South Broad Street, which. He envisioned, you know, a whole bunch of new theaters, and including the Kimmel Center, and some other theaters. Um, you know, he 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 had all these ideas for for these waterfront mega projects. So when you have big destination projects like that in the offing, uh, and when you're gearing them to people from outside the city and people who are afraid to take transit or unwilling to take transit, um, they're going to drive. And so you have to build parking garages. And so in those early days, in the early 2000s, just as I was uh, starting to do this job, um, 
there were a lot of proposals for parking garages. And at this point, I should say that they hadn't built that many theaters or attractions at Penn's Landing. But um, developers thought, oh, we can make some money if we build parking garages and suburbanites start coming into the city. And um, it was just amazing how many proposals there were for parking garages. And inevitably, it meant uh, tearing down existing buildings used by, by people. And um, I found myself writing about these because I found them um, very counterproductive to what the city was trying to accomplish in terms of, of reviving its core. Um, you know, when you, when you build a lot of parking and you see this in, in, in some other cities like, you know, Cleveland or um, uh, maybe Buffalo, New York, um, you, you create this kind of empty zone where, where nothing is happening and you create this uh, increased distance between habited, inhabited buildings um, and you, you make the city feel lonelier and less safe. You know, that was one reason I was really troubled by them and, um, you know, the way they look. Um, there are no windows, they have kind of this blank stare. Um, garages require a lot of driveways and driveways mean you have um, automobiles crossing the sidewalk where people are trying to walk. Um, and it just, it encourages, you know, driving, uh, which is, you know, now, now we're well aware that it's, it's, it's bad for the environment, um, but it's, it's bad for social, sociability as well. And it, um, we should be encouraging transit uh, we should be designing our city for the people who live here who can, you know, walk to stores and restaurants and, you know, that or bike, um, you know. So I, I, I believed in a lot of that. And so um, although I didn't intend to, you know, review the aesthetics of garages, I, I ended up, you know, writing about all these issues, you know, and trying to help readers understand why, you know, it might sound like an easy solution. Oh, I can just drive and park uh, and then go to my favorite restaurant that in the long term, it was really counterproductive for the city's success. Now you mentioned uh, the Avenue of the Arts plan. Uh, mm -hmm. How did that work out? Oh, so the city built a few um, theaters, uh, the Kimmel Center, which I mentioned. I think the Wilmer Theater, which is on South Broad, was there before. Uh, they fixed up the Marion Theater. But um, I don't think it got it, you know, it developed anywhere near what they expected. I mean, there were there were some streetscape improvements, but um, this really interesting thing happened uh, along the way. There was this, you know, big push, you know, for, you know, a great you know, white way like Broadway, uh, you know, with lots of lights and attractions on South Broad Street, and and it moved pretty slowly. And then um, developers began buying up these old uh, 1920s office buildings. They call them uh, Class B office buildings, and and most of them had been, you know, just sitting there empty for years and years. And and, and developers started buying them up um, and turning them into apartments, and Suddenly, you know, there was this whole residential population on, on, you know, what was called the Avenue of the Arts. And, you know, they needed to shop. The people who live there needed to shop and they needed they wanted to go to restaurants and they wanted to buy coffee. And so uh, small businesses opened because you had this, you know, what we call a 24-7 population there. 
wasn't just, you know, people going to the theater on Saturday night. So you had a residential population that could support uh, a lot of other activities and, you know, their presence made people feel safer. Um, and really, you know, I, I did write a column about this, which I think is in the book, uh, about how um, it wasn't so much the avenue, the arts that really helped, you know, Center City come back. It was the avenue of the apartments. It was, you know, increasing the population density uh, of the center that made it more attractive. And, um, you know, again, this comes back to my point about the parking garages. Uh, because a lot of those people, they lived in apartments. They didn't. They were renters. They didn't have cars, and they 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 wanted to live in the center because they wanted to walk to work, um, and um, you know, just the more people that lived there, the 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 better off the city was. Now, uh, you talked about some of the development plans where they were trying to lure people in from the outside to come visit, and that connects to the parking garages. Mm -hmm. Uh, how does how do other design factors play in if uh, if you're gearing things for the people who live in the community versus people who you're trying to attract? Yeah, I write a lot about this in, in in the book, and it is one of the main themes of, of the book. Um, that you know, in in the early days of you know, I guess you could call it the city's comeback in the late '90s, early 2000s, there was this incredible focus on these me mega projects and, as I said, attracting suburbanites and uh, tourists and creating this tourist economy. Uh, you know, part of the, the thinking behind it was that um, uh, the city had lost a lot of industrial jobs and, 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 and Mayor Rendell was, you know, interested in, in, in sort of building up a new industry, the hospitality industry, uh, getting hotels. Um, but a lot of the mega projects that were planned for at that time, which of course required a lot of city investment and state investment, you know, they really were for out of towners, um, and um, they really perpetuated this idea of you know um, people coming from the outside for a brief period of time and then leaving. Uh, but you know, I would argue that the, you know the comeback really didn't become a true comeback until the residential population in the center and, and beyond the center started to grow again. And um, when you have, you know, permanent residents who are invested in the city, uh, they use the city differently. You know, they walk, they bike, uh, they have interactions, they form uh, neighborhood bonds, they become committed to the city. and you know, for the city's long-term health, you, you need that kind of uh, commitment. That's, that's what cities are, you know, this web of connections between people who, who live and work here. And the fact that we have great cultural attractions, yeah, that's a bonus. And, of, you know, of course we should have people visit them. But um, a city is, is about the relationships between the people who live and work here and, and have businesses here. Now you quote uh, one designer who was involved in the Independence Mall renovation. He said, Paris didn't build parks for tourists, it, it built them for itself. Yes, that, that was Laurie Olin, and uh, I, I love that quote. And I, I, you know, things did begin to change, you know, after some of these mega projects, um, you know, failed, and after, you know, we did begin to see this organic 
population growth and our organic development, redevelopment of, of, of neighborhoods um, under the, um, the Nutter administration, there was, you know, people suddenly woke up and said, well, we have to invest in parks. And it was, you know, I would say the, the late, uh, two, early 2000s and then the 2010s, uh, did see enormous amounts of investment in neighborhood parks, well, well beyond Center City, um, and and in rec centers and 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 refurbishment of libraries, um, and and really stabilizing and improving all these neighborhood assets, and um, you know strengthening neighborhoods and and um, you know that's been a really good trend, I would say. Now, one of the things that I had never heard of before I read this book was pop-up parks. Uh, what, what are those? Um, so this was a, a big fad that began, I would say, around 2007, which was the beginning of the, uh, the real estate crash, the recession. And so there had been a little bit of a boom before then, um, but then, um, you know, everything came to a screeching halt. and cities like Philadelphia saw their tax revenues decline and construction stopped. And so uh, it's, it started in San Francisco, you know, this idea of um, creating outdoor space cheaply, quickly, uh, kind of DIY. Um, and um, that's why they call them pop-up parks, because what would happen would be, you know, a neighborhood group or um, or the city would sort of um, fence off a, a section of, of street pavement or an empty lot and bring in some chairs and picnic tables and um, some shipping containers and uh, food trucks. And, you know, it would be like a park in a box and you'd unpack it and there would be this great little park. And uh, I remember. Um, when the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society did its first pop-up on Broad Street uh, in an empty lot. It was like an amazing place because they created this little um, sort of amphitheater-style seating out of shipping pallets. They had these um, shipping containers where you could buy beer and sandwiches, uh, picnic tables. They brought in, they trucked in some some trees in, in pots, and it was like, you know, going there was like an instant vacation, and they became incredibly popular places to hang out. Um, they were, you know, just just magnets for people who, you know, just, you know, there's nothing, you know, more wonderful on a summer day in a city than to, you know, stand around under a tree with your friends and, you know, drink a beer or a glass of wine, and, and people have this hunger to socialize. Um, it was it was really nice. I mean, we still have quite a few of them. And um, what's interesting to see now with uh, the pandemic, uh, since we, we can't eat inside of restaurants, um, the city uh, has enabled a lot of uh, restaurants to reopen by by giving them a couple of parking spaces uh, in front of the restaurants where they could set up outdoor tables. Um, and that's keeping them going. Um, I should say there's another there's another um, uh, important aspect uh, to these pop-ups, and um, you know there was a, a, a increasing belief, um, which I share, uh, that we allocate allocate too much uh, uh, street space to cars and not enough 
to people, not enough to pedestrians, not enough to bicyclists. Uh, the cars get the lion's share of, of the space. And um, one of the ideas behind pop-up parks uh, was that we should take some of that space and, and give it over to, um, you know, tables and chairs and benches and, and use it in a way that um, city residents, pedestrians can enjoy. Now, uh, Philadelphia's parks were part of William Penn's original plan. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what, what his ideas were on parks? Well, you know, Penn, William Penn was famous for saying he, he wanted a, a green country town uh, that would uh, always be fresh and, and never burn. Um, part of his concern was, was that back then there were a lot of fires in cities. You know, there had been the Great Fire in London, and cities were always being destroyed by fires. And, 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 and Penn wanted parks, not just for people to enjoy them and to be healthy, but as a way of separating buildings. So uh, if there was a fire, uh, it wouldn't leap from one building to another and destroy the whole city. But but he also believed, you know, he, you know, in a way like Jefferson as well, you know, uh, he, he, he thought of cities as um, uh, needing to be green to be more healthful. You know, there were, before the, you know, the current pandemic, there were a lot of um, plagues in cities in which a lot of people died. And um, even though, you know, Penn didn't fully understand germ theory, uh, he knew that places with, with fresh, fresh air and trees um, uh, and greenery uh, felt better uh, and were more healthy. And, and, you know, kids could, of course, play and people could take walks. So, you know, I think he, he wanted to do that as well. Um, and, you know, as a result, um, Philadelphia, you know, has this really wonderful mix of, you know, density. We, we live in row houses, which are, you know, close together and um, house, you know, quite a few people. Um, but we have uh, a lot of parks, a lot of really wonderful parks, and um, we have a lot of street trees. And, um, you know, I always say it's the best of both worlds, both urban and suburban in its way. Uh, because of all this greenery and and it makes it very livable and you know I've been thinking a lot about this now during the pandemic when people are you know asking whether some very very dense cities um, are safe I mean I, I I don't actually buy that density is 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 the, the prime cause of COVID or the prime cause of its spread um, but you know being in close proximity does make it harder to control. I think crowding is the real problem. But, but anyway, you know, I think Philadelphia uh, is really lucky uh, that people people have you know their own little private space in their row houses. Those who who live in row houses, uh, it has parks. Um, you know, it, it it has it has the 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 liveliness of a of a dense city, but uh, the open spaces of a of something more suburban. Now, Philadelphia also has extensive riverfront areas. Mm -hmm. uh, how has the, the effort to give public access to the riverfront uh, connects to the, the interest in parks and open, open space? Well, so Philadelphia, Philadelphia's two rivers are, you know, an amazing asset. Um, of course, like, you know, most cities, um, you know, the city was founded at its river and it was founded there because, you know, at that time, um, you know, com commerce, and trade um, 
was by boat. And um, so all our industry and, and, and port activities uh, were congregated around uh, the Delaware River initially, uh, and later the Schuylkill River. Um, and um, eventually, you know, when we got, you know, automobiles and, and trucks um, and, and, and industry evolved, we stopped using the riverfronts in that way. And we had these, you know, abandoned waterfronts um, for industrial sites. And um, we, you know, it took us a long time to come around to the thinking that these could be, you know, beauty spots um, that we could actually enjoy our, our, our waterfronts uh, in a very different way that than we did than we used them when when they were industrial, um, and so the last couple of decades, you know, have been you know have seen an attempt by the city to reclaim the waterfronts um, for parks for for residential use. Um, it's been pretty slow going, especially on the Delaware River. Um, Interestingly, you know, every you know, for for decades, the city was obsessed uh, with redeveloping the Delaware. You know, um, uh, there've been like at least six or seven plans for the Delaware waterfront, and the city's never really managed to pull them off. But you know, while we weren't looking, uh, the Schuylkill River front has really emerged as a pretty exciting place. And what what started that was the construction of a very modest uh, recreation trail um, during uh, the street administration. Um, just it started out as just a mile of of trail um, that was landscaped, um, but very modestly. And um, the trail has grown in, in length, and it's, there are plans to extend it more. And um, now there are new apartment buildings and office buildings um, lining that, uh, lining the Schuylkill waterfront, and it's it's so heavily used. And in this pandemic, um, you know, almost too heavily used. Uh, it's such a wonderful attraction. I you know I think there is you know something deep in you, human nature that makes people want to be near water. Uh, to watch the sun flicker across the river. And um, uh, we've really seen that in the last few months. Now, one of the characteristics of Philadelphia's architecture is the building material brick. And uh, mm -hmm. you say that it's uh, Philadelphia's favorite building material. And you also talk about a red brick lobby. Uh, how important is brick to Philadelphia? It is our signature material. You know, almost all our, you know, original row houses were red brick. Of course, our, our civic buildings were often made out of stone. You know, I probably wrote those words, red brick lobby, uh, a good decade ago. And now I, 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 wish, I wish we did have a red brick lobby because um, uh, unfortunately, uh, there are a lot of newer materials that have been introduced in construction that um, aren't quite as attractive as red brick. I mean, some of them are great, and, and some architects use them in, in really interesting ways with lots of texture. But, um, you know, and this is true in every, every city. Um, a lot of contemporary architecture um, is very flat. Uh, the materials are very dead looking. Um, the thing that's nice about brick and stone are not only are they natural materials, but um, you know, they 
they're really not one color. They're many, many colors. And, you know, brick has mortar in between it. And so when you look at a brick building, um, there's a lot of life to it. Um, some of these newer, flatter materials, um, be because they are manufactured, um, are really truly only one one color, and and they're and they're um, they are kind of lifeless to look at. So um, you know, we went you know 180 degrees from like you know building rather large buildings in brick, which can look strange sometimes if it's not properly detailed to to going to building almost nothing in brick uh, in the last few years except you know modest brick details um, so um, it might be nice to see that red brick lobby come back now Philadelphia is a, kind of a city of row houses and there's one that you write about that you call the split level house and you talk about it, it's interesting design what was interesting about it why did you write about it Row houses, for the most part, I mean, there are grand row houses, but, um, you know, it's a, it's a type, and it was replicated over and over again. <laughs> and, um, you know, what makes Philadelphia great, really, is its ensembles of, of houses and, and, and buildings and its blocks. But, you know, partly because of the grid, partly because of you know, what sometimes is called the Quaker restraint. Uh, we, we don't have a lot of standouts. Um, and so this, this split-level house, which is, uh, you know, a private home uh, built on a, on a corner, and um, you do see often in Philadelphia breaking from this, you know, sort of relentless rows of, of, of flat uh, brick row houses, on the corners, you'll often see a rounded facade. And what's nice about it is, you know, it says, here I am at the corner. And, and, and it's, it's always wonderful when a, when a building responds to its site in that way. You know, that's why people love the Flatiron Building in, in New York, uh, which, which comes to a rounded point um, at the intersection of two streets. And, and, and so in Philadelphia, we have you know, we had in the past um, a number of these rounded um, corner buildings. Um, so the, the split le split level house um, was built on an empty site in uh, in Northern Liberties. Uh, it had been vacant, and and um, but there were two surviving uh, Victorian houses on the other corners that. Um, that had rounded fronts. And so the architects uh, mimicked that, but in a modern language. Um, and in fact, they used glazed uh, black brick, which was at that time very new. And um, they really sculpted that house in interesting ways. It's called the split level, um, or the see-through house, I should say, because um, they created a lot of indentations um, in the facade. Um, the architects call them voids, but a lot of openings um, that broke up the flatness of the facade. And so it was just a wonderful composition, the rounded corner, the entrance that went underneath, like kind of a, uh, an overhang. Um, 
the way you could sort of see in but not see in at the same time. It was it was a you know it was a custom design, um, and um, it you know it was totally unique and yet it was speaking to the houses that were that were already there. So, you know, in a way, it's like everything you want from architecture. Uh, you want it to be new and fresh, but you want it to to recognize what was there before. Um, and you want it to respond to its its surroundings. You want it to, you know, acknowledge the, the people and buildings around it. And that was that's that's what this building did. Now, during your during your time as the uh, architecture critic, the Enquirer moved to uh, another building, and you write about that in the book as well. So that was kind of an unusual situation where not only are you an architecture critic, but you're experiencing it firsthand. Uh, what was that experience like? The Inquirer and, and the Daily News had been housed in this very classic uh, sort of neo-Gothic newspaper tower since the early 20th century. Um, it, you know, I called it the shining white knight because it was painted white. And, um, and it was, you know, uh, it was a classic tower that uh, like a wedding cake tower uh, that got narrower toward the top and then had a, had a, a clock and a, um, kind of a, a cupola at the top. And uh, it was just a, f a few blocks north of City Hall's tower. And so you had this really interesting juxtaposition, um, you know, of two powers, you know, the government power and the, and the power of the press. Um, and everyone loved this building. Um, the building was, you know, very badly maintained. It was in terrible, terrible shape. Um, and then, um, you know, the newspaper itself uh, had been bought and sold and bought and sold. And, you know, we were hanging on for dear life at that point. Um, and uh, our owners, uh, which was a, a, you know, a private equity company, I guess was trying to like get out uh, and, 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 and just like not, not lose their shirts. And they managed to sell that great tower and they had to find us um, new premises and they um, rented some space in uh, an old department store, the former Strawbridge and Clothier department store uh, at 8th and Market. And um, we were going to take everything that was in that tower and, and you know, which was, uh, I think, 18 floors and, and move it to ladies' garments, former ladies' garments in, um, in Strawbridge's on one floor. And of course, you know, I heard a lot of griping from my colleagues and, um, you know, how could this be? How could the newspaper like be squeezed onto this floor? And, you know, what would it be like to be in this completely different location? And there was a lot of fear. And, and of course, the public, you know, wanted to know what was happening to their hometown newspaper and what it was going to be like. Um, so I, I, I wrote a column, you know, Talking about this transition, um, you know, I, I was sentimental about the tower as well, um, being an old newspaper person. Um, but I was also really excited uh, because at that time, um, that part of North Broad Street where, where the Inquirer Tower was located um, was very desolate. It was it was very depopulated. And 8th and Market was, a you know, a lively place. It had great transit. Um, in fact, we have access to the uh, Market Frankfurt L and, and the Patco High Speed Line straight straight from our you know offices. And we you know we step in the elevator, we 
we we take it down to platform level. You know, I was really, really excited about being in an office that was so interwoven into the fabric of city life. Um, you know, I used to joke um, that when we were on North Broad Street, I would step out of the Inquirer building and I would look north and I would look south and I wouldn't see a single person. And I would I would say to one of my colleagues, is, is today a national holiday? Because there were just no people. And then uh, suddenly we were at 8th and Market and it was teeming with people. And it was it was really wonderful. And I, I just I wanted to point out, you know, just about the role of a a newspaper in, in the life of a city. Um, we are we are really, really part of this city. Um, and um, we needed physical space that allowed us to be interconnected with the city. Now these interconnections that, that relate to buildings and the people and communities, uh, it, it even connects with design features like windows at street level. Why is that so important? Yeah, I'm a, I, you know, that's a, a constant theme in a lot of my um, columns. Um, so, you know, I, I, I am a Jane Jacobs urbanist. You know, Jane Jacobs is this uh, famous writer who wrote a book called um, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, in which she identified a lot of reasons why cities are successful or not successful. And she talks a lot about the ballet of the street, about this interactions between pedestrians and residents and shopkeepers and uh, office workers and she you know talks about this idea of the 24 7 city you know where there's activity of some sort you know night and day seven days a week and so um what happened unfortunately in the 60s and 70s when when cities were being um, depopulated was that a lot of new buildings uh, were built in a kind of fortressy way, um, without windows on the ground floor, without openings, without any. You know, they, people were afraid. It was a time, I guess, when crime was rather high, and um, people felt uncomfortable in cities. And these build, new, new buildings were designed in a way that was meant to be protective, and unfortunately, um, walled them off from the sidewalks, from the people who, who lived in, in the city. Um, and then older buildings were sometimes, you know, retrofitted in the same fortressy way. And, you know, it, it, was, it was really terrible for cities because, you know, the same, this is, you know, the same thing I was saying about parking garages is um, the more you separate um, areas of, activity and um, uh, the less safe you feel and um, and it feeds on itself uh, when people when people pass a building uh, with shops on the ground floor or even if they're not shops like a gym or you know a doctor's office um, they feel like oh there's life inside I'm not alone I'm not the only one here I'm not going to get mugged uh, but if, you know, if you have all these blank walls, if you just have parking garages and there are no people and you, you feel isolated, uh, you start to feel nervous. Um, and you, and you, you know, you might feel a little depressed, you know, all these blank walls, nothing interesting to look at. Um, you know, so I, I, I think, um, windows at street level 
an activity of, of some sort uh, is vitally important to, 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 to cities, you know, success. And also I think they, you know, they help our mood. They make us, you know, we see other people. We, 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 you know, we are social creatures and we feel much better, uh, when we can see and interact with other people. Um, you know, that's one of the terrible things about the pandemic. We're all walking around in masks. We can't see each other's faces. Um, a lot of businesses are, are closed. Uh, it's been really, really, really hard um, to to have that kind of, you know, social experience. Um, Jane Jacobs talked a lot about, you know, um, being um, among strangers. You know, they, it, well, the great thing about a city was that you can be alone among strangers, you know, feel the comfort of having other people around without necessarily you know, it's not like they they know your business, but uh, at least you know there are other human beings there. Now, one of Philadelphia's iconic communities is Jewelers Row, and you, you write a little bit about it. Uh, if people walk down the street there, what, what would they see that makes it distinctive? Well, you know, it's uh, Jewelers Row is um, Sansom Street between Seventh um, uh, and Eighth, and then a, a little bit beyond that, and. Um, you know, it was a, a place where um, one business, one industry really clustered, and these were people who, who made custom jewelry um, and all the various crafts that uh, were necessary for that, like um, stone cutters and uh, casters and polishers and engravers. Uh, and they all clustered uh, in this, on, this, on the same street because they used each other's services, and um, it w it was uh, it was like um, a, you know what we call a maker space today, um, and it was very lively and very dense. And um, the buildings, you know, are all different, but um, you know they are just like beehives of activity. Um, there's one building on the corner of Eighth called the Jewelers Trades Building. It's amazing these. You know, little small studios, maybe, I don't know, 15 by 15, um, one after another, and every craft necessary to manufacturing jewelry is in that building. You know, people who import stones, people who cut the stones, people who, who um, cast the gold or silver into molds to make jewelry. Then there's another profession called polishers and, and engravers and stone setters. And then there are the retail stores at, at, at street level where um, these products are sold, bought and sold. So it's, it's this whole, it's this ecosystem. That's what really makes it so wonderful. And the city used to have a lot of places like this, you know, fabric row and, and kitchen supply row. And because it is, you know, natural that, um, you know, these businesses rely on each other, but also if you're a consumer, if you're a shopper, uh, you might say, oh, I want to buy jewelry and it would be very inefficient to just go to Jewelers Row and then I can look at, you know, 10 different jewelry shops. Um, that way of doing business is, is dying out in cities, in America at least. Uh, but Jewelers Row managed to hold on for a long time. Um, Recently, uh, there was a big, a big long battle because uh, a developer, Toll Brothers, uh, bought up five buildings um, 
and demolished them to build a high-rise luxury condo building. Um, And people really felt that was going to disrupt the ecosystem. Uh, And it has. You know, it's changed the economics. uh, It's changed the rents. And um, the worst part of it is now, um, having torn down those buildings and dug a big hole, uh, Toll Brothers has stopped the project because of the pandemic. And so now we have the worst of all possible worlds. Uh, we lost those buildings. We, we've lost um, a big piece of that ecosystem. And uh, for the foreseeable future, there is no apartment building. Now, in 2016, Pope Francis came to visit Philadelphia. And one of the things that happened was uh, several blocks were closed to automobile traffic. Uh, what happened? How did people respond to that? Oh, well, it was more than just several blocks. It was. Um, all of Center City. I mean, I, I, I forget the exact boundaries, but uh, I think it was uh, Washington Avenue to, to Spring Garden, at least. Um, you know, uh, sort of like, you know, when the Inquirer moved, you know, people, initially people were like griping, oh, I can't, I can't drive, I can't, you know, pick up stuff in front of my house. You know, everything was closed to cars. Um, uh, there was a lot of complaining about the restrictions, um, and some people felt that the city had gone overboard uh, in its security concerns. But then, uh, when all these streets were closed and all the cars were gone, it was the most amazing thing because uh, people just took over the streets, and you saw like kids with chalk in the middle of the street. Uh, making pictures and hopscotch boards and people biking and walking and playing touch football. Uh, And it became an incredible party. Um, I remember um, walking down Walnut Street near Rittenhouse Square um, one one evening during the Pope's visit, and it was like the Ramblas in in Barcelona. Uh, It was just full of, you know, evening strollers and outdoor cafes phase and um, it was it was just wonderful and um, there were lots of organized bike rides uh, they called them the Pope ride and uh, people just uh, you know huge huge crowds of people uh, got on their bikes and were just biking through the through the through the streets and uh, you know at one point I just saw people you know sit down in the middle of the street just because you know they could do that Uh, And this goes back to what I I was saying earlier with the way we allocate space in the city. We really privilege the car uh, much more than necessary. And and street and and the cities are really they're about people. Uh, And, uh, you know, we have to reprioritize this and um, give pedestrians and bicyclists priority. Um, of course, you know, um, we need to move, you know, people and goods uh, on vehicles, you know, through the city, you know, to have, you know, we need commerce and we and we need to be able to do this um, and we need to have deliveries and all these things. But um, I just think um, and a lot of people, you know, believe that we need to adjust our, our priorities when we do this. Now, you, at the end of the book, you, you quote uh, Jeff Weinstein, you mentioned that he had a big influence on you, and you say that he taught you that taking sides is the single most important act as a columnist. How have you uh, implemented that in your, in your criticism? You know, it, it seems like an easy thing to, to uh, take a position. Um, 
in a column or a review, but um, you know, Philadelphia may be a city of 1.5 million people, but it's still a pretty small town. And um, I am a reporter as well as a critic and columnist, and so I interview people, and then I might have to say negative things about their projects. Um, but that's hard, but I, I, I do believe my, my, my first obligation is to my readers. Um, so, you know, there's no point in writing a column if you don't have a point of view, if you don't have an argument that you want to make. Um, because, you know, otherwise you might as well do a news report. Um, I, I believe, you know, also that point of view writing, which is what I do, uh, helps us make sense of the world. Um, if you read, a, you know, a, a totally neutral report of, you know, a zoning commission meeting, you know, you, you, you won't know what's right or wrong. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about this now in journalism. People complain about the view from nowhere, you know, having, you know, no starting point, no perspective. You know, when you when you write a column, and it of course should be properly labeled as one, and you're making an argument, you know, you're taking a side in that zoning dispute. You're giving it shape. You're giving it meaning. Um, you might be wrong. I've been wrong a lot, <laughs> um, but you know, you're you're articulating a, a view of the world that can be useful. Either people you might sway people into agreeing with you, or you might help them form uh, a counter argument. But both things are useful, I believe. Um, you know, the other thing I do, um, you know, uh, I guess I guess the term is accountability journalism. And, and because I am a reporter and, you know, I interview people and I use records uh, and collect data, um, you know, I, I'm trying to hold our elected officials and our public officials accountable for these decisions. Um, a lot. If you look at the book, you'll see a lot of those columns could be political columns because they're about campaign contributions and how they influence uh, decision making, um, and um, they're about you know often about you know kind of small time corruption. You know, I never thought when I became an architecture critic that I would be uh, writing about campaign contributions and and their a uh, very detrimental effect on um, policy making. But, you know, a building looks the way it looks because of a whole series of decisions, and many of those decisions are political. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Inga Safran. She is the author of the book, Becoming Philadelphia, How an Old American City Made Itself New Again. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Phil. Nice to be here. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.